This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number eight. A lot of software does their projections over six, eight, ten years. When they print it out, you end up with screeds of paper. I don't know about you, but I threw my crystal ball away two or three years ago. You know, <laughs> it's very hard to predict. And I mean, you're making guesstimates as to what the outgangs are going to be and rent's going to be and so forth. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Commercial Property Show Australia. Our very first lucky draw prize was drawn recently, so congratulations goes out to Lachlan Sims. You have a free signed hard copy of Chris Lang's book, How Investing in Commercial Property Really Works, coming out to you shortly. A few things before the show gets started, guys. I'm going to start playing around with the format because the podcast started to get a little bit long. So I'm going to try and make it a little bit easier to consume, but keep that high quality information coming out to you. And as always, if you have any feedback or comments, please let me know on the CPS Facebook group. And remember to subscribe, rate and review. And now in today's show... Bronco Cazell from First in Finance explains where the bank's appetite for lending has landed in the COVID-19 climate. He shares the alternate paths for investors and what interest rates and LVRs to expect. Investing in syndicates can be an extremely powerful way of increasing your returns and sharing the risk. Chris Lang shares how a syndicate works the difference between a private and public syndicate, and how he sets up syndicates for his clients. At Developer Life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom. If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au. Our next guest is a mortgage broker and the founder of First in Finance, Bronco Cazell. How are you, mate? Very well, Andrew. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to have a chat. No worries, mate. Can you just tell listeners a little bit about your background in finance? Yeah, sure. I started in the bank as a bank Johnny, as they were referred to back in the day, 1981, with the uh, Commercial Bank of Australia, which was then merged with uh, Bank of New South Wales to form Westpac. So I was with Westpac for about 24, 25 years, and then I was headhunted to go to uh, ANZ Corporate Banking for a few years which I did that, and then I decided to hop into the world of broking in 2005. So it's about 15 years ago. So I've been in broking uh, for 15 years working for myself. Oh, great. So you definitely got a lot of experience under your belt. It's one or two years there. Yeah. (laughs) 
So, mate, it's currently the 4th of June, and we're still in the middle of the coronavirus, but things are starting to get somewhat back to normal. Let's just go back to the start of the pandemic. Did you notice a change in the way banks were lending back then? Oh, absolutely, Andrew. What we saw was a flood of emails coming from all the lenders, left, right and centre, in regards to letting us know that watch this space at some unprecedented times, that favourite sort of cliche that we've heard over the last three, four months, the way they were going to approach things, they were looking to go into a bit of a hibernation mode, they weren't sure what was happening in the marketplace, where it would end up. We were contacted directly from a couple of our non-bank lenders who indicated that, look, um, whilst there's no issues with liquidity, we're just taking things a bit steady and a bit cautious until all this sort of plays out. So whilst we were still getting deals settled, it may have taken a bit longer to get new deals up and running, and that's certainly what we saw. Okay, so bringing the conversation back to present day, have you Mm -hmm. noticed a change in the bank's appetite to lend now? Look, not really. I think it's still steady as she goes. In the first in finance business here, we operate across residential mortgages, asset lending, and also commercial and property development. And what we've seen is in the residential space, it's probably come back and businesses kind of as usual. That being said, in the residential space, there's a lot of T's being crossed and I's being dotted, and there's a lot more focus around COVID-19 and the impacts that has on the applicant's income. And if they're only working four days a week as, as opposed to five days a week because the hours are being cut back, that's really been looked at very closely, which is fine. And But there's a lot more work that's going into a lot of the transactions as a result of that. In the asset finance space, it's changed. There's a lot more legwork that is being done around that income and serviceability space again, as I mentioned. But the asset finance seems to be moving along fairly steadily. In the commercial space, that's sort of dragging itself a little bit further out. Again, um, there's a lot more questions that are being asked around the COVID-19 issues. And development finance is the other interesting aspect. There's a lot of the non-bank players are just pulled out of that space and it's being left to the pretty much the private construction lending market. Okay, can you just explain what you mean by asset finance? So the asset finance is purchase of cars, plant and equipment, yellow goods, that sort of thing. So each of the the majors have their own equipment finance arms or asset finance arms, and and that's what I mean by that. Okay, so it's more like liability finance. Uh, It's it's finance for motor vehicles, plant and equipment, uh, trucks, trailers, that sort of thing. Oh, I was I was using reference to rich dad, poor dad, where your car is a liability, it's not an asset. It was just a, a rich dad, poor dad joke. <laughs> Very good. No worries. So what interest rates are you achieving with your clients at the moment for commercial lending? So in that commercial space, depending on the asset and depending on the transaction and the purpose of what's being required, it's sort of in that four and a half to six and a half percent mark. If it's a cash out scenario, then that may step up a little bit more and in the non-bank space it's around about one to two percent higher than that okay so four and a half is the lowest that you've seen there's nothing below that oh look it's been horses for courses there's been some special rates that have been coming up from a couple of the the lenders but i would always caution advertising rates 
things that look good in the shop window aren't always as they seem. It's when the rubber hits the road and gets assessed and you get a conditional approval subject to valuation and then you know what the interest rate is going to look like. So I hasten to put rates out there in the first instance because it's just shop front window advertising. Yeah, no worries. You've got to be careful there, don't you? So what percentage LVRs are the banks willing to lend at the moment? Well, that's, it's an interesting question, that, Andrew. At the moment, 60 is the new 65. So 60% LVR is the new 65% LVR in that commercial space. If we had some lenders that were looking at 70 to 75%, now it's 65 to 70 So everything seems to be paired back during this time. Banks have been pulling back on their LVRs. In saying that, if there's a strong client, it's a strong proposal, they will go to higher LVRs. If you're then looking at private sort of market, the private funding, there's a bunch of money in that commercial space that is, say, between the 7 to 9% mark, where the LVRs are being pushed between sort of 65 to 70%, depending on the appetite, the location and the purpose. Okay, so is the gold standard for non-recourse finance still 60% then? For non-recourse, as I said, the new norm, 65 is now 60. So if you're being conservative, you should be banking on 60% LVR. And, uh, you know, I've seen a couple of applications where it's really trying to be getting pushed from 70 to 75. But look, at the end of the day, we all need to play a part in this. And whilst the lenders are out there and they're a little bit more conservative, the borrowers also need to be a bit more conservative in their approach and understanding that 60% is probably right on the money in that commercial space. What type of assets are the banks actually liking right now? They're liking assets that have got a good, strong income stream. So the lease profile, the whale, the weighted average lease to expiry is pretty solid, a good stable of tenants, but also a good spread of tenants. So they're looking at what that spread of the lease profile is in the commercial space. And they're also looking at the strength of the client. Who's the supporter? It comes back down to 101 prudential lending, you know, who's sitting behind it? Who's the person? What are their properties like? And what's their principles and net worth showing? Okay, so is there any particular sector that they're more willing to lend on? Look, it's more the sort of traditional sectors now. So, you know, your industrial, commercial warehousing, commercial shops. If you're looking at things like petrol stations, childcare centres, the sort of specialised type of assets, it's a very thin market now as to who will lend in that area. There are, there are still lenders that will look at it but the number of lenders in that market has thinned out. So they're really pulling back to blue chip assets that they can really hang their hat on from a security point of view, and they're not looking for specialised security. Are there any assets that they're absolutely refusing to not fund anymore? That's a pretty broad um, question, Andrew. And the reason I say that is that with my breadth of experience, there's always somewhere to place a deal but it's what the client is prepared to pay as a price pertaining to the security that they're offering. For example, if they do have a petrol station, which is a specialised security, depending on who's standing behind it and what that looks like, is it a national brand or is it a secondary brand? The majors are most likely not looking to pick that sort of business up at the moment, but some of the non-banks or the privates are willing to take a position on that. So, 
it's a broad statement. There's not one category fits all. If you were to say to me, out of the major four, well, that's a different question because then the major four are certainly looking at not overexposing themselves to specialised security unless the client has got a particularly strong position. Okay, so you said when the person's standing behind it, do you mean the actual operator of the petrol station or do you mean the actual person who's purchasing the service station? I'm referring to the borrower, what we refer to as the sponsor of the transaction. So that's the borrower. What's their position? What's their experience? What's their statement of position, their assets and liabilities, their knowledge in the business? Have they got external cash flow other than the particular petrol station in that example? And it also might be a childcare centre. Have they got experience in childcare centres? Or it could be a, an operator of another type of business or venture. What's their experience in that field? So it really comes back to the sponsor and do they have any external cash flows? That sounds like they're starting to lend like it's a residential premises, not a commercial, because I mean, my understanding of uh, lending for commercial is you're lending against the asset, not the actual person. Oh, no. In my experience, there are asset lenders. Absolutely. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are asset lenders. But in the main, we're still coming back to 101, is who are we lending to? So we need to understand who's the person that's standing behind the transaction. So... You know, someone that just comes up to the plate today and wants to purchase a childcare centre but has never had that experience in the past, they're going to struggle with getting a good hearing to get a transaction across the line. But if they've got some external cash flows and they've got a good management team that's going in there to run the childcare centre, well, that's a different conversation. So it's all about the backstory. It's about the sponsor or the borrower's position and really comes back down to the strength of the application. Is that more on terms of someone who's going to be an owner-operator? Like, say, if I'm going to purchase a warehouse, but I'm not going to actually be operating the warehouse, there's already a lease in place with a good whale, good income. <laughs> Is it the same? Uh, look, it's broken up into a couple of areas. So if we look at just the warehouse with the existing lease and the whale position on that property, uh, that's one factor. So if we tick that off and say that's strong, we then look at the sponsor and say, okay, well, in the event that business that's in that lease was to fold and they walked away and that lease becomes then null and void, what's the ability of the sponsor, the client, to step in and keep making the repayments until they were able to release the property? So you've still got to look at all those aspects. It's not just wholly reliant on that lease coming in, notwithstanding that that's a big component of it. Okay, fair enough. So with the whale, what's the minimum whale that the banks feel comfortable with? Each of the banks have got their own criteria. They're typically liking to see a minimum whale of three years. And if it's a bit longer than that, that's even better. And they'll generally mitigate their loan terms to the position of where the whale's sitting. So if the whale's three years, then they'll generally tie a three-year term to that facility and then review it coming up to the, the expiry of that term. Okay, great. What's the average length of loan you are securing with your clients at the moment? In that major bank space, it's somewhere between three to five years, depending on the position of the whale, if we're looking at the commercial transaction. We have got a couple of non-bank lenders that will look at longer terms and anywhere up to 25 years on a commercial transaction. So if they're happy with the asset, they're happy with the sponsor, they take a position that they'll provide a longer term lend. 
and there's a risk for reward. So their pricing's a little bit higher than the majors, but they take a position that they're prepared to provide a longer-term facility and generally without annual reviews or a need to re provide revaluation of the securities. So that's quite attractive. And in our business in First and Finance, we've been able to facilitate those facilities for a number of clients. There's a bit of a trade-off there, isn't there? So you want a longer there is. a longer loan, you're going to be getting a higher rate. Yeah. And the other trade-off is, is generally with the majors, they want to do a annual review or a biannual review of the facilities. And that also generally uh, triggers a revaluation of the securities, certainly at the end of the facility if it needs to be reviewed. But with some of the non-bank lenders, as I said, once they approve the loan and they're happy to proceed, it's generally a set and forget, but you're paying a little bit of a premium to get that facility in place. But again, a number of clients are liking that option because they, they've got certainty around the, the tenure of their facility. Okay. And which banks are more willing to lend right now? Oh, look, I think all banks are willing to lend. Uh, it just depends on their appetite for the securities and and the space that they're looking to lend into. So in the residential space, there's uh, banks that are lending. In the commercial space, that's a little bit thinner. So the majors are still lending and a lot of the fringe fringe players in that space are lending as well. Certainly, there's a lot of appetite in the private funding market. So there's deals to be done in all markets, but it's horses for courses and risk for reward. So what rate would you expect from a private lender right now? So a private lender would be typically in that space of around about 6% to 9% in that range. And it depends on the asset and the purpose and the transaction that we're doing. When you compare that to the traditional lines, you're probably 1% to 2% higher. What's the best deal you've secured for one of your clients at the moment? One of the best deals we've secured is a, uh, a private lender who's looked at a commercial facility and it's been a, a 65% lend, uh, 6.95 for three years, and that was facilitated documented and approved and settled within 10 days. And that's in an environment at the moment where all banks are taking between four to six weeks to just assess a deal in that private space for that sort of money, 6.95 and settled in 10 days is just sort of market leading. And we've been able to do a couple of those transactions in the recent last, say, six months where it's been quick to the market. And clients are coming to us at uh, First and Finance because we're getting known for just getting stuff done. And what type of asset was that, Bronco? Uh, it was a commercial shop front down in Melbourne and a good lease profile, long-term tenant, good, strong sponsor that sat behind the transaction. Really good opportunity for the client, good proposition for the lender, and we were able to get that done fairly quickly. Oh, great. Okay. Where can the listeners go to find out more about you? www.firstinfinance.com.au. Bronco Casol from First in Finance has been my guest today. Thanks, Bronco. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cashflow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. 
it's not unusual to receive fifty to a hundred to even two hundred thousand dollars of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's commercial property cash flow blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. Returning once again today is the mentor and property expert, Chris Lang. How are you, Chris? Yeah, good. Thank you. Excellent, mate. Okay, Chris. So today I wanted to talk about private syndicates. What is a private syndicate? Well, let's just talk about a syndicate is a group of like-minded people joining together to make an investment. And it doesn't necessarily have to be property. You know, there are various things that are syndicated, racehorses and other ventures. But with commercial property, there are public syndicates, which uh, some of them are listed, some of them are not. But a private syndicate is generally people that are known to one another or are clients of maybe an accountant, solicitor or a real estate person who joins them together to pool their equity so that they can buy a larger property and in the process share the risk. So how exactly do they work? Well, traditionally, well, it's interesting, probably about 15 18 years ago, I was asked in my capacity of dealing with clients whether I would be prepared to help, we'll call a promoter of a syndicate, to bring some investors to the table. Originally, they wanted us to find the property for the syndicate, which they did, and they took an option over the property for three months and then set about finding the investors to go into the syndicate. And obviously, they weren't going too well. They came back to us and said, look, we're happy to use your services to find the property, but, you know, would you have some clients? And they were very generous. They said, we'll give you a 5% fee for anyone that you can bring to the table. And it worried me a bit because there seemed to be a lot of fees. I mean, if you're going to the general public for a private syndicate, you need what's called a product disclosure statement. Now, to prepare one of those by the time you do the valuations and independent reports and all that sort of stuff, it cost you the best part of $250,000. So there were those fees alone. Then there's the legal fees, the valuation fees, and here they were, they're saying they were happy to offer me an additional fee of 5% of the equity that I, through my clients, could bring into the, um, the syndicate. And that concerned me. And I sat down and worked it out. And I reckon if 85% of the money that was contributed towards the syndicate actually made it to the deal, that would be a good result because 
the rest of it was siphoned off in fees. The promoter, and this is not speaking disparagingly against him or her, but they go out and they take an option over a property and they pay a fee to hold it while they round up all the funds. So if they don't, they lose that money. That's an option fee. It's not a conditional contract. So they have an exposure. So they charge an entrepreneurial fee as well. So if, as I said, if you think 15, 18% of the money that you contribute to the normal private syndicates gets eaten up in fees. And so I thought there was a better way to do it. And it also occurred to me that if you're trying to negotiate the best price with the vendor for the property, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say to them, well, look, we want your best price, but we can't tell you for three or four months whether or not we're going ahead with the deal. In other words, by taking an option, you pay an option fee, but it's not 10% of the property. It's probably maybe 2 or 3%, but the vendor effectively takes the property off the market. So... It just didn't make a lot of sense. So that's when I sat down and started to put together or address the issues that I saw the people had when they joined the syndicate. And, and so one of the principal ones was, how do I get my money out? And with private syndicates, there's not a lot of exchange of equity or the opportunity to do that if you legitimately want out of the property, whereas there is with you've got a listed property trust but then again, there's a whole lot further additional fees because it's a public offering. Just going back a bit, can you explain what an option is for the people who don't know? It's much the same as with shares, but what you, you do is you say to the owner, the vendor, that we'll agree a price and terms, you'll sign a contract, but it's effectively an option to purchase the property, which you can walk away from at any time and for any reason but you pay a fee for it, a forfeitable fee if you don't proceed. If you do proceed, it becomes part of the 10% deposit. But if you don't, and the owner can't force you to take up the option, but if you choose not to, then you forfeit the fee, which, as I said, is generally 2 maybe 3% of the purchase price. And that's called a call option agreement, isn't it? Well, I suppose in the strict terms, yes, it is. It's a one-way option. It's not a put and call. The put means the vendor can force you to take it up. It's your decision whether you take it up or not. Okay. And so what is the difference between a public and a private syndicate? A public syndicate is all of the above. They'll still take an option out, but they will use a stockbroker to raise the equity in the syndicate. And they're looking for a large number of smaller investors, whereas the private syndicate is generally a small number of larger investors. So whether it's listed or unlisted, with a public syndicate, it's generally a pretty impersonal exercise. I mean, you are just a number and you get computerised bits of paper and it's not a very much a one-on-one -on -one exercise, whereas with a private syndicate where you might have five, six, the most probably 10 people. I mean, legally, you can have 20 to still be a private syndicate, but I generally like to keep it somewhere between five to seven people. What price range are the properties that you would purchase in a private syndicate? Well, they're generally in the sort of five to $10 million bracket. And the reason for that is that up to about five mil or thereabouts, you have the wealthy private people. When you get over about 12 million, you get into the smaller institutions. So there's a sort of a sweet spot between about five and 10 mil where it's probably for most private investors a little bit much. 
but it's too small for the institutionals. How much money would you expect to have to invest into a private syndicate? Well, it depends. I generally make it a minimum of, say, $250,000, but I've had some that have put in a couple of million dollars into a syndicate. Mind you, they just sold their business and they had $6 million to spend. It wasn't their total life savings, but it just depends. And the other thing is that what I do is say to my clients, look, how much money do you want to put in? And we work that out. And I say, now what we do now, first up, is that you lodge 30% of your intended equity into the solicitor's interest-bearing trust account And then within 30 days of an unconditional contract being executed for the property, you then provide the balance of your equity. Now, the logic there is to overcome that issue I discussed a moment ago about trying to negotiate the best price for the vendor, but tying the property up for three, four months. And it doesn't place you in a great negotiating position. So this way, we can have the syndicate formed that the initial 30% is placed in there. I mean, it's earning interest. It's not like it's eating its head off, but it means that when we find a property and decide it's the one we want, we can negotiate, close the deal. And the other thing is we only borrow 60 to 65% of the money. In other words, it's what's called a non-recourse loan where there's no personal guarantees provided. Therefore, if we've got 30% of the money in there, we've actually got enough for a 10% deposit on the property. So we can execute a contract without having to require the vendor to remain waiting for the property to come out of an option period. So we can negotiate a very sharp deal, sign the contract, and then generally it's a 60 or 90 day settlement. So the trust deed says within the next 30 days, you contribute the balance and that leaves room for, you know, if someone's overseas or interstate or whatever, even if it's not exactly 30 days they get it in, there's enough leeway between getting the money in and when settlement has to occur. Okay, so if someone wants to invest in a syndicate, do they need cash or can they use equity from a property? Well, either or both, and some people do a shandy. But as far as the syndicate is concerned, it's a standalone vehicle. It's a a unit trust. The trustee... Most trustees are what you call a vanilla document. In other words, they're drawn to comply with ASIC requirements. Now, over the years, I've sat down with our solicitor and created a document. I mean, we nearly drove them crazy, but it's as much a marketing document as it is a legal document. Yes, they've got all the ASIC requirements, but it also has all the various addresses, all the various issues that concern people. And as I said, One of them was getting their money out. Now, what we do in the trust deed is we have a clause in there that says every four years from the anniversary of the purchase, there has to be a mandatory meeting and there has to be a vote to continue to own the property. And it has to have a 75% majority to continue to own the property. Now, you might say, what's the magic of four years? Well, what I found is that generally about three, three and a half years into the ownership of a property, someone has a change of circumstances. They either get married, they get divorced, they get transferred interstate or overseas, and they have a genuine reason for wanting to redeem their equity. It's not a just a capricious decision. They need to, because most of them are going into a syndicate. It's meant to be a sort of a eight to 10 year horizon. But as I said, circumstances can change. And so 
if you're part of the 25% that wanted to get out, but there's a 75% majority to continue, if you're part of the 25%, the trustee requires the trustee to redeem your units. And there's a mechanism to have them valued and adjusting for if the property was sold, what sort of costs would be involved so that the continuing members aren't disadvantaged. But there is a mechanism there to redeem your units at the current market value of the property. Now, what's interesting is, and so you can imagine I've done a few of these, and you know that, this is going back to the early 2000s. Normally, with private or even even some of the public syndicates, you have to go cap in hand to the manager or to the other equity participants and say, look, I need to get my money out. Will you sell? And everyone's a bit coy. And if they do want to help you out, they want to do it at a discount. The beauty with this mechanism is that everybody knows that you're going to be bought out at market value and everybody's, the remaining ones, equity in the property goes up proportionately to what they currently hold when your units are redeemed by the trustee. So what happens, I've found, is that the ones that have put in more money and the reason they put it in is they like the property and they want to continue on, have actually gone to the person wanting to sell and said, look, let's not redeem them. I want to buy them. I want to increase my personal holding relative to everybody else. So that was a bonus I wasn't counting on. It was something that that happened because there was already an entity being the trustees, which is everybody really, because the trustee company, it's a private company with the same shareholding as the relativity is in the unit trust. So everyone's effectively buying the, redeeming the units, but it created, because there was a mechanism in place, it created an unforeseen competition, if you like, and therefore one or two of the others who were more keen to and had more equity available were saying, look, we'll buy those units rather than redeem. So the idea was in four years that you would revalue the property, borrow, uh, not increase the percentage borrowed, but the amount borrowed, and then with that money you would redeem the units. But that that's never taken place over the whole 20 years. There's always been a bit of a competition to buy those, anyone that wanted to get out. What percentage return would you expect in a private syndicate? Well, from my perspective, my role is not as the promoter. My role is, yes, I'll help the individual clients and introduce them to the lawyer and make available the trustee and all that sort of stuff. But my role is is really in just acquiring the property for them as though they were a single but larger client. Now, for that reason, I don't alter from the way I work with other clients. And my test is, and I've developed this proprietary software called Final Judgment, and that takes 18 different components and puts them into a projected cash flow on an after-tax basis. And my yardstick is that if you were to buy the property and borrow 70%, the projected return again, over a four-year period, has to be an after-tax return of at least 10% on the equity that you invest. So if you think about it, that's not too shabby. That's about 14.5% pre-tax on a 30% tax rate. Okay, so what percentage per annum would that be? 10% per annum. Oh, okay. So yes, it's a four-year period. It's partly related to the mandatory review, But see, a lot of software does their projections over six, eight, ten years. And you end up with, you know, when they print it out, screeds of paper. 
I don't know about you, but I threw my crystal ball away two or three years ago. You know, it's, it, <laughs> it, it, it's very hard to predict. And I mean, you're making guesstimates once you get past three or four years as to what what outgoings are going to be and rents going to be and, and so forth. So that's part of the reason. But the real reason is that if circumstances change and you have to sell, even though you might have bought it on a 10-year horizon, you have to sell after four years, you want to know you're going to make money because, you see, your greatest incidence of costs are your acquisition costs, stamp duty loans 5.5%, then you've got your valuation, your legal and any other acquisition costs, and then your next greatest incidence of cost is your selling costs. Again, your commission, advertising, legal, etc. Now, if you spread that over 10 years, it makes it look pretty good. But if you do your calculation over four and you're still getting an after-tax return per annum of at least 10% on your equity, you know you've bought a good property. So that's 10%. That's the cash on cash, isn't it? That's the projected return on the equity that you invest after your borrowing, it takes account of your borrowing, your interest and, and so forth. It takes account of all the acquisition fees. It takes account of all your selling fees and then the equity released at the end, as well as all the income you've got in between. But it also takes account of your depreciation and so forth. So it's on purely after tax basis. Right. So that would be more like your return on investment, your ROI. Correct. That's what it is. What's the internal rate of return? Oh, it's the IIR. Okay, cool. Excellent. So, Chris, do you ever put in a waterfall structure into your private syndicates? What do you mean by that? Well, a waterfall structure where the actual investors get paid before the sponsor or the syndicator gets paid. So it's like a bucket and the bucket gets filled up. And then when it overflows, then the syndicator gets paid. But the actual... That's the difference between what I do. There is no syndicator. Oh, okay. Right. It's purely that every dollar that is invested, in other words, my starting point was that as a member of the syndicate, you shouldn't incur any more costs than if you as the investor bought the whole property yourself. Okay. So in other words, you would set up your own unit trust to buy it, right? You would still pay a solicitor. You would still pay a valuer but you just pay a proportion of it now as a member of that. There's no extra cost. That's what I'm saying. I took a whole slice out of the that, as I said, there was so much that didn't ever make it to the table that I just I felt uncomfortable with that. And that's why 20 years ago I sat down and devised this simple model which allowed individual investors to participate. And as I said, it's more like an investment club than a syndicate. And what we do is out of the five or six or seven people, we get them to nominate three that are on the board of the trustee company. I mean, if it's any more than three, it gets a bit like a mother's meeting, you know, to to get a decision. So three is good. And then they work with me to find the property, analyse it, negotiate it. And before anything's done, go back to the other syndicate members to get their approval. Fortunately, most of my clients are what I would call affectionately wealthy amateurs. They have made their money in their area of expertise, and I respect that. And most of them, when they come across and talk to me, are wanting to tap into my expertise. And as I said, I have no quarrel with them questioning anything. And, you know, I enjoy explaining it to them. And that's part of the reason why I encourage them to do the nine-step formula home study course. So they 
have a good understanding. They mightn't feel confident enough to do it by themselves. But when we come across circumstances and instances along the way, when I talk to them, they know exactly what I'm talking to them about and explaining because they've, they've done all the training. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? So, Chris, how do you find a private syndicator? Is it easy to find one? Well, no, not really. Some accountants will do it and solicitors, but a lot of them, they don't actually do it themselves. They are agents in inverted commas for some of the private promoters who will enlist the help of accountants and solicitors and financial planners. And as I said, pay them a 5% fee for delivering their clients to the table. The way I work is with my mentor group. And so they, it's part of the benefits of being with that group that they, when a few of them are ready, I mean, some of them might only have 250, half a million to invest. And as you know, yes, you can buy property in there, but it's getting pretty crowded market now in the sort of under a million dollar bracket. So for them to be able to step in and put in quarter of a million, half a million, maybe a bit more and be part of a purchase of five, six, seven, eight million dollars, you can buy a hell of a lot better and, and you get to do much more with it down the track. Yeah, well, that actually dovetails into my next question, which was what are the benefits of investing in a private syndicate? But I guess it's it's a lot lower risk, isn't it? Well, you multiply your equity, but you share the risk. And, you know, it's amazing the friendships that have been made between various syndicate members. I mean, I encourage them to talk to one another. As I said, there's a mandatory four-year review. Generally, we try and have a 12 months after the syndicate's been formed, have a a meeting we get together over a, a sandwich lunch couple of bottles of wine, the accountant comes, we've got a managing agent, the lawyers are there so that everyone can ask questions and have them answered in a very informal fashion. And then, as I said, most of my clients are spread all around Australia, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, WA, South Australia. So it's a good chance for them to get together. We generally do it on a Friday so that if they want to stay the weekend and do something, they can. But it's, you know, as I said, it's more like an investment club if it's done properly. Yeah, it definitely sounds good. That's excellent, Chris. And we'll wrap it up there. But next episode, we're going to dive into how to set up a private syndicate. So, Chris, where can the listeners go to find out more about syndicates and yourself? Well, what I can do, if you like, is I'll shoot you a link that you could put underneath the uh, podcast and they could download an ebook I put together on private syndicates, which will help explain everything a bit more detail. Fantastic. My guest today has been Chris Lang. Thanks, Chris. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm really enjoying putting it together for you all. And I want to say thank you to Kevin McLeod for the music and my guest today. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.